0: John Moorhead. I would like to take a moment here at the Multifaith Matters Podcast to thank two new supporters. Uh, The first is Charles Randall Paul, uh, who came on board as a monthly supporter, as well as Ryan, who goes by the handle ryanmsn.com, who uh, supported through our patrons page. Thank you so much. This makes it possible, and we hope that uh, other listeners and viewers will click our patrons page and help support us and help keep this podcast going. Thanks for your support. And I'm privileged today to have as as uh, my guest Thomas K. Johnson. I'll read a little of his bio, and we're going to have a conversation this morning. Thomas K. Johnson is senior theological advisor to the World Evangelical Alliance, the WEA, and he'll be talking more about that in this conversation. Uh, the WEA uh, represents and connects over 600 million Christians in 140 countries. Additionally, he currently serves as WEA special envoy to the Vatican and a special envoy to engage humanitarian Islam. And we'll be talking about that as well. He has long been a foremost international Protestant voice on human rights and religious freedom, including consulting with diplomats and religious leaders from around the globe. After an informal Bible college in Germany and university and seminary degrees in the US, Dr. Johnson received a Fulbright DAAD grant to research religious and philosophical responses to the Holocaust at the University, I'm going to butcher this German here, Universitat Tübingen, hopefully that's close.
1: Universität Tübingen. There we we go. go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Leading to a PhD in ethics and philosophical theology at the University of Iowa. He has been a pastor of Protestant churches in the U.S. and former Soviet Union and has served as professor of philosophy and theology at 11 universities in nine countries, including the anti-communist European Humanities University in Minsk, Polaris, now exiled in Lithuania, Charles University in Prague, and Martin, is it Busser? Martin Buter, Busser,
1: Martin Buter, yeah, Busser.
0: Okay, he is a board president, president of the uh, Comenius Institute, boy, I should have read this like two or three times beforehand, <laughs> and, and, an or, and, and an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church in America. Johnson has authored nine books and more than 250 articles, essays, and book chapters in several languages. He has edited 25 books on religion and society, along with editing and translating numerous reports on human rights, religious freedom, and intrafaith and interfaith relations. His best known is Human Rights, a Christian Primer, a standard evangelical resource since publication in 2008. His three most recent books are on Knowing God as Trinity on Human Rights, and on Humanitarian Islam. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be, I'm glad to be here with you.
0: Well, I'm I'm privileged. I have been uh, following what you're doing, uh, both on Facebook, and I think um, there's another, it might be academia.edu. You've got some of your work out there, and uh, I, I subscribed, and, and I keep abreast of what you're doing that you put out there. Um, I like to begin these podcasts with A little background so folks know the life journey that has led to the works that they're producing and the the positions that they have. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your life experience and how it got you to where you are, particularly with uh, the World Evangelical Alliance?
1: Okay, my my duties in the World Evangelical Alliance really have two foci, theology and human rights and religious freedom. And I've been active in both, both foci for a number of years. And that arises out of two experiences I had as a young man. Uh, in 1972, I was at the Munich Olympics, and which was, of course, shocking in itself because of the terrorist attack there. But I also went to visit the concentration camp at Dachau, which is about 30 kilometers northwest of Munich. And I was utterly shocked. It had been turned into a nice museum. And I was utterly shocked by the pictures that were taken at the time the concentration camp was liberated. That forced me to start thinking about what's going wrong in our world. Why are there such dramatic human rights rights abuses? That forced me to become a human rights theorist. On the other hand, a couple of years later, uh, I found myself in the middle of a small church that was rapidly on its way to becoming a cult and started looking at questions of well, what is their version of Christianity that I can really believe after this experience? Can I continue as a Christian?
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: And that forced me to become a theologian and then with the appropriate education. So that led me into now, many years later, having two areas of responsibilities for the World Evangelical Alliance, theology on the one hand, but also human rights and religious freedom on the other hand. And that's that's the long story. There's a lot of events along the way that led to this, but that's the the very long story of my life.
0: Well, it sounds like a great one. It certainly has uh, resulted in some some fascinating work that is very helpful for uh, not only the the body of Christ and and Christians, but also for Muslims and others along the way. Uh, I want to talk about at least a couple of those. You've got uh, two new books out. One uh, deals with humanitarian Islam, and Evangelical Christianity. And it's called uh, The Clash of Civilizations, A New Partnership for Peace and Religious Freedom. And folks can find uh, in the program notes for this podcast, they'll find uh, a link to it where they can purchase it, or it'll be listed on our resources page where they can access a PDF copy courtesy of uh, the World Evangelical Alliance. Um, how did the idea for this book come about? And can you kind of summarize the thesis of it?
1: Okay. It, uh... The idea came about rather dramatically about two years ago. I was for a long time somewhat familiar with the the fact that in Indonesia, the relationship between religion and the state or between Islam and the state is different than in the Middle Eastern world. Indonesia is the biggest Muslim country in the world by a huge margin because many of the other Muslim majority countries have rather small populations. Indonesia has a vast population and a, a huge Muslim majority, but they have a different relationship between religion and the state. And I had known that a long time because I'd, I lectured on church state relations here and there. And uh, then along the way, one of my friends, uh, Paul Marshall, started investigating that farther and writing some articles on religion and the state in Indonesia and their distinctive theory of religions and state relations that they call Panchasila And And, uh, a little over two years ago, I wrote to Paul once and said, is there any possibility that you could get me into contact with some of these Muslim leaders who have this view of religion in the state? And he did. Said, he said, oh yeah, he knew them personally and he connected me on email. And then two years ago on Easter, there was of course the bombing of some churches in Sri Lanka. And I already had a little bit of email contact with the representatives of Indonesian humanitarian Islam. And about a week after um, the Sri Lanka bombings, about a week after Easter, they wrote to me and said, uh, we want you to know that that's not us. We don't bomb churches. We're not that kind of Muslim. Can you help us to, to develop our communication with Christianity to let Christians know that that's not how we do things? And I got the email from them on a, Sunday morning, I think it was Sunday, one week after Easter, I was about to go to church. Got the email on a Sunday morning. Oh, that's an important email. And uh, then on Sunday, later Sunday, I wrote colleagues in the World Evangelical Alliance and said, oh, this this is important. You should follow up on that, got some other things, wait. And so I started corresponding with them and decided I need to just as quickly as possible read their books and read anything I could about them And uh, then I learned that one of their senior members was going to be on vacation in North Carolina, not far from where I live right now. And so I said, can I buy you lunch? If you're on vacation, just a couple hours drive from where I am. So we got together for lunch and that led to more meetings, including a meeting in Washington DC a few weeks later with the head of their, head theologian of their movement who was in Washington for meetings. And I said, well, we just have a lot to talk about. Uh, what, how would it work if I took a group of evangelical leaders to meet with you in Indonesia? And they said, great, that would be wonderful. I would lead a group of evangelical scholars and leaders to meet with a group from their movement in Jakarta. And it happened that the World Evangelical Alliance was holding its uh, uh, General Assembly just an hour or so away from Jakarta. And so we set it up so it would coincide, so it would not mean an additional trip all the way to Indonesia. And we met then, I think it was in November of 2019. We spent a whole day talking. Uh, We had eight evangelical scholars and leaders who might ask to participate. And it was a similar number from the humanitarian Islam movement. We talked the whole day, from great in the morning till well into the evening and decided at the end of that, we should start working together on some things related to religious freedom and all the surrounding issues. And so we started working together and I realized I needed to, there was no good book available in English about their movement. So I thought, well, I should write the book. So I did. And that's the book that was just published a few weeks ago, uh, came out, I think officially in the US, I think it was published in the first part of March. It was. a little bit earlier in Europe. It was a week or two earlier that it was published in Europe, I think. So, so that's the background of that particular book and how I got involved in working with this group of Muslims.
0: Now, the, the book discusses humanitarian Islam. Is that a, a term that you have coined? Does it come from within humanitarian Islam itself? What, what are its origins and how is it different from other expressions of Islam?
1: Well, that's a think of it as a brand name for the type of Islam being promoted by their major group. You know, Islam is very, very diverse. It's a horrible mistake to think of Islam as unified. They're unified. Islam is unified in only a few things, such as celebrating Ramadan, and call to calls to prayer, and this kind of thing. It's really a vast, diverse group of religions that we and they also grouped together as Islam. But after ISIS became so violent in 2014, a group of Muslim thinkers in Indonesia realized they needed to more effectively communicate their version of the role of Islam in society, and that they needed a new brand name to do so. And so they developed the brand name, humanitarian Islam in English, communicate what their type of Islam has to say about the role of Islam in society. Now, it has older roots. Their parent organization is the Nadlatu Ubama, which was founded in the 1920s in Indonesia. That was founded in response to the takeover of Saudi Arabia by the the Wahhabi group of Muslims. in reaction to that, they formed their own new organization, the Nadlatu Uguma, to promote an alternate vision of what Islam should be. And in 2014, they decided uh, that they needed a new brand name in English to communicate that more effectively. Though it has longer roots, much longer roots in Indonesian Islam, that's a brand name that's a recent development in response to ISIS. And it's there, and they then moved to publishing very extensively in English. Before their publications were in Arabic and in Indonesian, now they're emphasizing publishing in English, and they've done a very nice job doing that, uh, publishing a huge body of literature in seven years uh, about their version of Islam, humanitarian Islam, and all in well edited English.
0: As you know, um, particularly in America, Christians, uh, especially evangelicals, are, are challenged in uh, relating to, to Muslims. Um, there's a lot of stereotypes out there, reductionism, equation of, of all of Islam with violence. So what are the challenges that uh, particularly American evangelicals, Christians in the West, as well as the, the Muslim world itself might face to embracing and relating more to this humanitarian Islam? Well. The first step is
1: what I've mentioned, that you have to see that Islam is very, very diverse. And while the extremism has roots in certain types of Muslim orthodoxy, there are also alternate types of Muslim orthodoxy that really totally reject violence in the name of Islam. And the Indonesian humanitarian Islam is probably the most well articulated version of uh, nonviolent Islam that also has massive institutional roots. They represent 100 million Muslims. We're in America, we're used to our, our micro churches that have a few hundred thousand members or something if it's a big denomination, they represent 100 million Muslims in Indonesia. And as that's the institutional basis and that's that's good to know that there are the type of radical Islam that often comes out of the Middle East doesn't represent a lot
0: of Muslims, there are real alternative visions of Islam. Uh, what you shared uh, on Facebook um, and with me as well uh, privately a, a fascinating response to this book of yours on humanitarianism by the Muslim community. Can you talk about that?
1: Well yeah there the uh, here I am as a, a Christian theologian writing about Islam and some of my biggest fans are Indonesian Muslims. <laughs> so they're uh, writing positive reviews about my book and in fact, posted the whole PDF of, of my book on one of their websites with a very strong endorsement. And so this has been, you know, really unexpected for me. That here are some of my and the book contains a whole lot about Christianity because I tried to develop a a broad-ranging comparison of humanitarian Islam's approach to life and society with my Christian approach to life and society. And so there's a whole lot about christianity and christian ethics in the book but the people who are posting it on facebook and writing about it are muslims so that's that's something that i am pleased with uh but it's not exactly what i expected so (laughs) are there go ahead i think more muslims are reading that book than christians
0: well that was my next question Are, are there efforts underway through marketing or promotion or what have you to To get this out of the hands more of Christians, particularly, you know, American evangelicals, so that they can understand, learn about, and and seek out those who are promoting this humanitarian Islam?
1: Well, yeah, there's efforts underway, but this book wasn't really written for American evangelicals. Okay. American evangelicals are just a small part of the evangelical world. You know, there are in the just belonging to the world evangelical alliance there are 600 million christians in 140 countries the united states is one of those 140 countries
0: right
1: so i'm not writing just for american evangelicals uh the united states is one of the 140 countries to which i have to write for which i have to write this book so let's not make american evangelicals too important uh, they're only one of the 140 countries. So it was not written for American evangelicals. Of course, I'm very glad if they read it because I think American Christians need to uh, engage with Islam at a high level, not at the level of stereotypes. Um, so it's not just for American evangelicals, but also um, there may be themes in what I'm suggesting as a Christian alternative to humanitarian Islam or Christian comparison that might be valuable for Christians in America to consider. Um, so that's, I don't know if that doesn't exactly answer your question, but maybe to something to discuss further.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no that, that's helpful. Um, uh, since uh, the work that I do is largely aimed at American evangelicals to try and change that mindset the the theology by changing the psychology underneath it as as to why they're so defensive towards religious others, particularly uh, the Muslim world, but certainly uh, evangelicalism is is not limited to America. Um, In light of the challenges that American evangelicalism faces now, given your work on the international scene, uh, who would you say might be some of the, the better candidates in world evangelicalism for charting a pathway forward?
1: Well, you know, I work for the World Evangelical Alliance and I, I'm very fond of what the WA is doing. Uh, the, for a long time, our pathway has been to go talk to people. Um, and that was true when Ephraim Tendero was the head of the WA. His background from the Philippines is when there were um, Muslim terrorists in the Philippines who were killing people, he as a representative of the churches in the Philippines several years ago, just went and talked to them. And went, just walked into their compound and said, shoot me if you want, but if you don't shoot me, let's sit and talk. So they sat and talked. And that led to profound changes in in the Philippines. Instead of talking about Muslim terrorists, he went and sat down, he found them, went and sat down and talked with them. And uh, for many years, the new Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, Thomas Schirmacher, has been going around the world to sit down and talk with Muslim leaders in as many countries as possible Uh, for a, a few years. He went to one or two top muslim leaders every month so he was traveling constantly all over the world but in all the major muslim centers he would identify who are the key muslim leaders at, at the national level and ask if he could go talk with them just go have coffee with them and um that's one of the things we have to do is go talk to people. Don't just talk about them. You have, then you end up with some fictional story about who they are and what they think. You have to go talk with them and then read what they have to say after you've talked with them. And that leads to an entirely different outcome. Yes. And and for me, uh, as I've been writing this book about humanitarian Islam, I've been corresponding with their leaders regularly um this morning I had emails with their leadership um about things we're working on we're working on writing a book together and I wrote a part of a chapter for that book this morning and sent it to them so what do you think of how I phrased this so I guess my suggestion is instead of stereotyping what 1.6 billion muslims must be like to recognize the variety and go talk with them and read what they have to say. And you'll see that there are, some of them are quite different.
0: That's now, very that's helpful.
1: Not, should not be concerned about Muslim extremism. Right. Uh, the people I know who are the people in the world who are the most concerned about Muslim inspired violence are Muslim leaders. Hmm. I have never seen people who are so appalled, disturbed, by Muslim terrorism as Muslim leaders. And to hear them talk about how, when they saw videos of ISIS murdering people, they had a meeting just to watch the videos together. One of their technicians had pulled together the videos, a group of videos so they could see them together. And they were just screaming in agony as they saw what was happening and then saying, these are Muslims who are trying to promote what they see as orthodox Islam. Uh, and they were the ones who were just shrieking in horror at what they were seeing. So we have to see there's this, you know, some Muslims are very morally sensitive people who are appalled at violence.
0: I appreciate uh, your, your call and reminder for a, a broader more informed sense of uh, both the Muslim world and uh, Evangelicalism, I think uh, many times in America we kind of get the idea that we're we're about all that's it's important, and uh, what our understanding is is the only understanding. So your call is extremely important. Um, you, you've also recently released a second book, "The Protester, the Dissident, and the Christian: Essays on Human Rights and Religion." Um, You said before we started the program that they had different histories. What's the story? How did that volume come about?
1: Okay. Well, and perhaps you're old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall.
0: Of course.
1: Um, I remember my wife and I watched these vivid scenes on television of people standing on the Berlin Wall and then later knocking it down with sledgehammers and this kind of thing. And uh, that was interesting for me, partly because I had seen the Berlin wall from both sides. I had been in East Berlin when I was a student and (laughs) actually saw, physically saw the Berlin wall from both sides, from East Berlin and from West Berlin. And uh, then seeing people standing on the wall and then knocking it down shortly later. Uh, And then 1994, uh, went with my wife and then three small children to teach in a, a dissident university in the former Soviet Union. This was a university that was started by opponents to communism, many of whom had suffered because of their interaction with communism, their criticisms of communism during the communist era. So some of these, these were sort of Hardcore anti communists who were Russians and Belarusians. And they had started a pro democracy university they called the European Humanities University, or in Russian, the Efropesky Gumanitarne uh-huh. Universitet. That was in Minsk, Belarus. And I got the opportunity to go there as a visiting professor of philosophy for about two and a half years, we lived there. And as soon as I got there, I realized that one of the key issues in their environment, philosophical issues in the situation, was how to talk about human rights. That was the background for everything they were doing, but there was the discussion of how we should talk about human rights needed some development, I thought. So I started lecturing on human rights theory in my university courses. Had a lot of freedom in terms of what topics i would choose i was teaching introductory philosophy classes uh, for freshmen and sophomores part of their general humanities program and uh, so i was teaching there also got some opportunities to speak for conferences of professors in the region from belarus ukraine and russia uh, these are professors, usually philosophy and history and sociology who were talking about the transitions in their society. And so I gave some lectures on human rights theory there. And that's the background, what this forced me to go more deeply into thinking about human rights. What do we as Christians have to say about human rights? Uh, And there's, there's a lot to learn. I had a lot of reading to do, a whole lot of homework to do, a lot of thinking. Um, and that led to some books and this recent book, The Protester, The Distant, and The Christian is really my, my third major effort to write on this subject.
0: Well, as, you, as the subtitle indicates, you, you, the book has uh, got a number of different essays. What are you trying to steer the reader towards with the various essays? What's, what's the, some of the takeaways that are important for them? Okay,
1: well, one of the important takeaways is that is the source of human rights. One of the things that struck me early when I was studying different theories of human rights is that one of the key issues is, is, can be phrased as where do human rights come from? What is the source of human rights? And the communist theories generally were saying that rights come from the state or from the party or from society the Western secular theories typically said in some complicated way that rights come from the self. The self generates rights, that through our interests and desires, we create rights for ourselves. And they wouldn't phrase exactly like that, but that's how I understand what they're trying to do That the self creates rights. And as Christians, it really is all Christians, Jews, and Muslims would probably say, rights are a gift from God. And therefore, it's not something that comes from the state. It's not something that comes from myself. And that sets a framework for how we should think about human rights. Now, that's one of the key issues I started thinking about 27 years ago or something, is what's the source of rights? But then that leads to the issues of what rights do people have? And we have this problem in the last, well, last 50 years, roughly, of the United Nations constantly developing new rights. Um, Some people joke that the the new week United Nations must have developed a new right already. Um, So it's the right of the week kind of thing. And that discredits the whole undertaking. Uh, In the communist world, the, the state gives, the state takes. So if the state gives you a right this week, you might take it back next week. Um, so in that, that framework to start talking about what rights do we think people really have that are God-given rights, therefore they're inalienable or in more recent terms, unalienable. Um, so that's the kind of thing i would most interested in communicating um, and, that, and approach that from several perspectives in that book.
0: Uh, I know you're working on a a much broader scale in terms of uh, a global type of thing, but again, my context is uh, here in America, at least American evangelicalism tends to be very doctrine-oriented and worldview-oriented, and one of the things I appreciate about your work is you're, you're doing theology, but you're also working on ethics, and I think many times in the American context, we're missing the focus on ethics connected to theology and this idea of virtue, a virtuous uh, theology uh, a life way of relating to uh, other people, particularly those in the Muslim world. Um, would you have any thoughts on that and on how we need, to, we need to continue to work on theology? I think theology is very important, but connecting that to ethics and other things are very important as well.
1: Yeah, um, well, I, I suppose for American evangelicals, Part of the background is a reaction against liberal Protestantism as it developed in the 19th and early 20th century. And this is far overgeneralized, but generally speaking, liberal Protestantism uh, reduced the importance of core Christian theology and, in some cases, denied parts of theology so that you'd have people saying the resurrection is unimportant and the miracles in the Bible probably didn't happen and this kind of thing. And that therefore the the theological component of classical Christianity was reduced or denied in some types of liberal Protestantism. And all that was left was what they said about ethics. Now what they said about ethics was unstable. So what liberal Protestantism has said about ethics changes every generation. In contrast to that, the fundamentalists and then evangelicals in America emphasized the core doctrine, the resurrection, the miracles of Jesus, the incarnation, uh, this kind of thing, and that that was necessary. Uh, However, uh, there have been times when we may have talked about ethics too little in American Christianity. And um, so there may be need for some development there and I've, I suppose my book is partly a suggestion in ways in which that that can develop. That You know, my book on humanitarian Islam includes a major section on Christian ethics, and I hope that contributes to the discussion of ethics among Christians you know, in the United States as well as elsewhere. Perhaps you found something there that was interesting to you that I was suggesting in regard to Christian ethics.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, I certainly do think it's very helpful, uh, in, in my opinion, when I, I think one of the other elements or dynamics involved is there's so much emphasis also on evangelism, proclamation, and seeing the other convert, which is important. However, then it, I think it tends to color and shape other things that we do so that relating to the other is viewed in terms of a strategy. What's the best strategy and plan rather than how does it flow out of an ethic of love for the other where I relate to them and want to see them embrace my faith, but I still love them and care for them regardless of whether or not they do. Um, so I see some of what you're suggesting very helpful there. Yeah. Um, I um,
1: I don't think our relationship with our non-Christian neighbors should only be a strategy to convert them. Um that's one element in what we're doing all the time. You know, I try to, in everything I do, I try to say something about the gospel. If I'm speaking for a group of diplomats, which happens regularly, uh, or a group of people who are representing various religions, which also happens frequently, I try to include something about the gospel of Christ because what I do as a Christian minister is the proclamation of Christ but that's not all that I do. And that's the problem if we think of this as all that we do is trying to convert people to Christ, then we've got, got something out of balance. You know, I'd like to draw on the uh, classical reformation discussion of the relationship between law and gospel, the law of gospel and the law of, the law of God and the gospel of Christ. And what we have to do as Christians is talk about both. We have to believe in both, the law of God and the gospel of Christ, we also have to talk about both. And God's moral law has multiple functions in our lives and in the, function, in the lives of people who are not yet Christians. Everyone lives in God's world, and God's moral law is built into the fabric of creation so that everywhere people are, they are engaging with God at some level because of an unrecognized demand that's all through life that comes from God. So people are always wrestling with God in some way or another. And that's broadly centered around God's moral law, which is built into creation, built into conscience, built into human reason and relationships. And so I see talking about the gospel as, taking up a, a conversation, or maybe an argument that people already have with God. and But I don't only talk about the gospel of Christ, I talk about a lot of other things too. One of those is the moral law, the universal moral law that we Christians used to call the natural moral law. And so there's a lot more to talk about than just a strategy to evangelize people there, because God is doing more than evangelizing.
0: I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you for sharing those thoughts and giving me that feedback. You you do work in religious freedom. We've had several podcasts here dealing with the issue of religious freedom and where we articulate the need for religious freedom for all and not just for, for Christians. Unfortunately, again, in the American context, in my opinion, I think we tend to emphasize uh, Christian freedoms often at the expense of others so that it becomes a form of Christian privilege. Um, can you talk about why it's important for Christians, not just to support their own religious freedom, but why should we be concerned, even for those where we tend to have negative uh, perceptions, whether it's Muslims or atheists or what have you? Why why do we all lose if none of us, if we don't support religious freedom for everybody?
1: Well, first, let me just note a bit of history. When the the World Evangelical Alliance was formed in the 1840s, one of the first things that where there was engagement, political public activism was in the realm of religious freedom. And it was on behalf of people who were not Protestants or Evangelicals. So this goes to the heart, you know, the World Evangelical Alliance grew out of the second awakening in the first half of the 19th century. It's in the 1830s and 40s, we have a lot of the Christian anti-slavery movement coupled with uh, aggressive world missions activities. The World Evangelical Alliance grew out of that combination of real concern for evangelism, real concern for anti-slavery efforts, and real concern for religious freedom for people who were not evangelicals. So those were some of the core ideas in the surroundings when the World Evangelical Alliance was formed in the 1840s. So this is not new. one of the questions is, is why do we believe in religious freedom? What's the basis? Is it just because I like my freedoms, or do we believe in God-given human dignity? And if we believe in God-given human dignity, then we can't really do things that impinge directly on the dignity of other people. And when people are worshiping, that's one of the most distinctive human things they do. Human beings are the only religious entities in the universe as far as I know. And people are, they're most distinctly human when they're participating in their religious beliefs and activities. Um, And to not allow people to do that is really an assault on human dignity. I believe it's a denial of that people are created in the image of God. So if I want to deny that people are created in the image of God, then I may deny them their freedom of religion. But if I take the first chapters of Genesis seriously, that means I believe that my neighbors are created in the image of God, and that they are always reacting to God, even in poorly chosen religions, then I have to allow them the political legal freedom to do so, even if I'm also trying to tell them about Christ. I would add a further point. There have been times when Christianity has been closely connected with the power of the government. Now this isn't new in American history. When Charlemagne was crowned emperor at Christmas in the year 800 in Rome, he was being crowned as emperor of the Christian empire. This idea of a Christian country or a Christian empire is a very old idea, it's not distinctly American and it does not worked very well. Uh, when peop- people are not allowed to choose Christ freely, something is out of place. Um, I think God wants our voluntary response to the gospel. I don't think God mostly wants people to pray the Lord's prayer or the sinner's prayer because they'll be executed if they don't. I just don't think that's the way God wants things to be. So that's maybe complicated, but those are some of my reasons why I think it's really quite important that Christians protect the religious freedom of others, not only for Christians. And I surely don't want the government, whether in Washington or Brussels or where, whatever, wherever, to be deciding which Christians are not to be persecuted. Because uh, then we might end up with Presbyterians persecuting Baptists and the Lutherans and the Methodists having to choose which side they're on. That's not what we want at all.
0: That's right. Yeah, we don't want so, to resurrect some of the darker chapters of church history, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had sent you some questions ahead of time, and we've covered those. Are there other things for listeners and viewers that uh, you would like them to know about in our conversation here? Are there things that I haven't touched upon that should be brought out?
1: Well, one of the things that's important to me is that... When I think about what God is doing, uh, I always think about God is doing something more than converting people to Christ. Now I've seen and participated in numerous missions conferences over 50 years. I have enough, enough memory to have been through 50 years of this. And when people talk about what God is doing in the world that's so exciting, they tend to talk about people coming to faith in Christ. And of course, I'm delighted that's happening. I'm thrilled that people are coming to Christ. Never in history has so many people been coming to Christ. The, the, The Great Commission is being fulfilled right now on a global level. Even Americans don't always see it, but that's not all that God is doing in the world. God always has been actively involved with his creation and with all people and things that are not only connected to the gospel. So I think it's valuable for Christians to talk about God's general revelation, that God is speaking through all creation and every dimension of creation. It's good to talk about God's common grace, or sometimes called his general or universal grace, that God is the one who gives us what we need for daily life. And that's true for everyone. Um, I think it's important for us to talk about universal human dignity, that God gives dignity to all people, not only to Christians, and to talk about God's universal moral law, what Christians used to call the natural moral law, and that people are always interacting with it because it's built into the fabric of creation. So there are certain things that I think is valuable for Christians to talk about that we, we may sometimes neglect. Uh, It's not because I think the gospel is unimportant. I do, it's I'm a Christian. That's the basis for my life and hope that I belong to Jesus Christ. But that's not all that God is doing. God is also involved in many other ways in his common grace and general revelation. And we should talk about that in all the different discussions we have.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. It sounds like you're calling for an expanded understanding of uh, the presence of God and and all of his creation and what we as Christians should be doing. I think many times we do kind of live out a uh, kind of a form of Christian reductionism. Uh, we're emphasizing just a few things and, and neglecting a great deal of other, other things that are important. And your work certain, certainly has uh, shined an important spotlight and given folks a lot to think about in that regard. So That's a good word. In fact, I can't think of a better word to close on as we draw to a close on our scheduled time here. Dr. Johnson, I want to thank you for being a guest here and on the program. I will again, let folks know that we're going to have a link to these books in the podcast description notes and folks can click and either purchase the hard copy of that or, on the resource page, on our book section, we will have links to PDFs that they can download that uh, you have graciously made available. Uh, so uh, I appreciate, uh, Dr. Johnson, your time that you've made and a very busy schedule to talk to us.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a real privilege. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Again, this is the podcast for Multifaith Matters. I'm your host, John Moorhead. Please click on these links and, and take a look at what uh, Dr. Johnson is doing. We'll have a link for the World Evangelical Alliance. Uh, get involved in what is going on there. We thank you so much for watching and listening. Until the next podcast.